Welcome to this episode of Horrific History and Hauntings. I'm Beth. And I'm Ramey. We're your hosts, here to talk about the stories that the history books ignore. From horrific epidemics and ghostly hauntings, to the catastrophes and tragic events that have sickened humanity. Beth, what are we talking about today, and what horrible historical fact do you have for the day? The main episode is going to be about horrific water. Strange, dangerous, and spooky waters. I'm gonna, uh, there's probably going to be a couple of episodes about these. It's going to be called Horrific Hydro Hellscapes. That's a good name. Yeah. This day in history, today is February 3rd, but we were supposed to record February 2nd. So I'm going to do February 2nd for this one. So yesterday in history, in 1962, the first U.S. Air Force plane crashed in South Vietnam during a mission to spray defoliant on a Viet Cong site. It killed the plants so they could see better. Yeah, I had to look up what that was. But yes, that's exactly what it is. The operation called Ranch Hand aimed to reveal enemy routes by using herbicides. Over 19 million gallons were sprayed in Vietnam from 1962 to 1971. The operation successfully killed vegetation but failed to haul the Viet Cong. I can't say that it is surprising. They were underground a lot of the times. Yeah. Since the late 1970s, Vietnam veterans linked herbicides, particularly the Agent Orange, which was the frequently used defoliant, health issues such as skin problems, cancer, birth defects, and similar problems were reported among the Vietnamese residents in that area, including high rates of miscarriages. I've heard about those. Mm-hmm. It's a sad ordeal. Yeah. And that's all for the today, well, I guess yesterday in history. We're going to talk about the strange and dangerous waters now. Yay. Lake Superior being the first part of Lake Superior. There's going to be a few different Lake Superiors, not particularly in this very episode, but in this little series, I guess it would be called. This one's about Standard Rock Lighthouse. It's called by some the loneliest place in North America. Doesn't sound all that bad. Yes and no. It's located 24 miles from the nearest land in Lake Superior. In 1835, Captain Charles C. Standard discovered the dangerous reef where Standard Rock Lighthouse now stands. For a long time, this reef posed a major danger to ships sailing on Lake Superior. Mariners, mariners, sailors would call it one of the most treacherous reefs in the entire Great Lakes. They're a lot more dangerous than you give them credit for those Great Lakes. Yeah. From what I understand, they're so large, they have their own weather systems. And for that reason, they sometimes can be more dangerous than the ocean, people say, because yeah. they're so unpredictable. Yeah. In 1868, to find out if a lighthouse would be able to stand in the harsh weather, they tested the shallowest part of the reef. The lighthouse service constructed a stone crib. It was 12 foot in diameter. And on top, they added a 20 foot high, 6 foot diameter iron day beacon. Um, not sure what it is. It's a beacon that flashes during the day. Oh, okay. Why? Beth, I just made that up, but it sounds like it'd be true. That doesn't make sense. Why would it flash during the day? I don't know. Hmm. I'm not a mariner. I'm landlocked. In 1877, the U.S. Lighthouse Service started constructing the Standard Rock Lighthouse. They constructed a tower on a rock that faced the vigorous Lake Superior storms, which proved to be difficult. Yeah, I'd say it was. The construction took five years and costed around $300,000. Each spring, repairs were needed to the construction that was already done due to the damages from the winter storms and the ice. 
The summer storms also forced construction delays. There's a lot of storms around water. A lot of delays and extra hard work and then the work you already got done getting destroyed and needing to be repaired throughout this whole thing. In 1882, the Standard Rock Lighthouse was completed. It was a 78-foot tower, and it was equipped with a strong lens that was visible up to 25 miles. I wonder how many ships wrecked because of that reef before this was built. It's hard to tell. Countless ships, I'd say. I didn't really look into that part. I should have. Then again, who knows, because there's so many lost ships in Lake Superior, which is another thing I'm going to talk about probably in another episode about horrific water. Mm Mm-hmm. The tower was seven levels. It had the kitchen at the base and a sleeping quarters above. The walls were seven and a half feet thick at the base and 22 inches at the top. Over 240,000 tons of rock, iron, and steel for lasting strength was used. The old keepers shared horrific tales of life on this rock, such as violent northwest storms, which caused 30-foot waves to smash into the tower. And the spray would reach the lantern room, which was 100. 10 feet above the lake. Wow. The storms were strong enough to knock items off shelves and tables inside of the tower, which, if that was happening, I would be leaving. As soon as the water calmed down a little bit, I would be like, you better get me a boat. I'm leaving. Remember when we narrowly avoided catastrophe when we visited Massachusetts Island's lighthouse? The night after we left, the interior of the lighthouse collapsed after we had went on a tour. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that until you just mentioned it. It was a close call. Yeah. I think it's the I think same the year. I think the lighthouses that... really should be a priority. They should put some of the tax money into keeping them up and going and not falling apart because they're just so cool. I think the town fixed theirs, took up money and everything and fixed it over time. When they would return in the spring, the keepers often would encounter thick ice at the base, which would require them to use axes to chop through 10 feet of ice. Can you imagine? I would say, I'm going home. After. I don't get paid enough for this. Un- I don't know what they got paid. Told amount of time to travel there, considering the era. Uh, then you show up and have to axe your way in and out of the storm. It's a wonder they had any at all. <laughs> the boats faced challenges navigating half a mile of icy lake to reach the station. And one year, keepers didn't arrive at Standard Rock until July because of the extensive ice on the lake. Trying to remove the keepers in the fall meant facing freezing strong winds, and in 1913, a strong north wind encased the entire tower in 12 feet of ice. A 12-man rescue crew took a week to free the keepers from the icy lighthouse. I'm glad they had food. They certainly didn't want for water. Yeah. I just couldn't live like that. I hate the cold, first of all. As much as I would like to live in a secluded place, I think it would mess with my mind if I was stuck there because of ice. Families of the keepers didn't live there like with most other lighthouses. It was a kind of like child and woman free zone. They were considered a distraction and kind of like a man lighthouse cave, (laughs) which I would go for that. A Yeti stuck in his (laughs) frozen cave. (laughs) The isolation led to days of silence and... The keepers and their assistants didn't really have much to talk about, so days of silence. I would think they were mad at me. (laughs) My brain would be saying, they're mad. It's a wonder there wasn't more murders. That's why some horror stories are all about lighthouses for these reasons. Yeah. I think Stephen King liked them too. Probably. The keepers didn't really last that long at Standard Rock, most of them. In 1882, the first light keeper, John Pask, 
stayed for less than a year. It had authorization for three assistants, but six came and went quickly. Three quit the lighthouse service altogether, and the fourth only lasted three weeks. Nobody blames them. Mm. Louis Wilkes from, I know I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, Marquette, Marquette, held the record as the longest serving keeper in 1936 to 1956. He stayed 99 straight days on the rock without leaving. I could do it. (laughs) When the U.S. Guard took charge of the lighthouse in 1939, their personnel also faced overwhelming loneliness, and some were not able to handle the solitude. Morale issues. Huh? They had low morale. In the 1940s, one Coast Guard member was said to have been carried off the rock in a straight jacket. Just an exaggeration. (laughs) That's why I said it was said, because I don't know if that one is true or not. Maybe it became standard procedure to carry a spare straight jacket to go retrieve the lighthouse keepers after maybe it was a life jacket and people just maybe <laughs> a decade later another coast guard member radioed the Marquay coast guard station they threatened to swim if a boat didn't pick them up immediately are you trying to say marquee is that how that's pronounced m-a-r-q-e-q-u-e-t-t-e no marquee is spelled m-a-r-q-u-e-e hmm. i don't know them Some individuals refused to return to the lighthouse after they left. They chose to go absent without leave or face a court martial. The Coast Guard at one point limited assignments to a single season and allowed personnel to choose their next posting. In June 1961, at about 9.30 p.m., a massive explosion occurred at Stanick Rock. Someone didn't take care of that oil light. Four men were assigned to the lighthouse at the time. 35-year-old engine man... First class William Maxwell, 22-year-old seaman Walter Scobie. That's a cool name. Yeah. And 18-year-old seaman Richard Horn and 34-year-old Walter M. Patterson, who was the officer in charge. Well, he clearly failed at something. (laughs) Over 1,000 gallons of gasoline stored in the engine house for electric generators had ignited. I knew it had to be that. Yeah. The impact rocked the tower, causing injuries to Scobie, Horn, and Daniels, and the resulting fire fed by propane tanks and the coal bunker blocked the tower's only exit. It also melted part of the limestone near the engine house. Extremely hot. And I believe there's still fire damage in some areas of it now. Maxwell lost his life in the blast. He left behind a wife and four kids. Some sources said his body was not recovered, but I don't know if that part's true or not. Very well, if the heat was that high, who knows? It's a possibility. The three survivors were unable to escape through the blocked door, so they broke a lower level window and climbed onto the open crib deck. I thought this was going to be some sort of horrible experience where they're basically in an oven. But there's windows, people. Yeah. Get out the windows. (laughs) You made it sound so treacherous. Well, I mean, one guy did die. Yeah. And lose his life, and the others got injured. Injured and trapped in a building. I thought by trapped, you meant there was no way out. No, they managed to get out. But even though they checked in regularly with the Coast Guard stations, the lack of communication and the, at this point, extinguished light went unnoticed. The men waited for rescue on the crib for two days with only an old tarp for shelter. The fire had to have gone out. Why didn't they go back in? How badly was the tower burnt? Well, it was an explosion first. I don't know. There had to be something left. Yeah, the tower, like I said, is still standing, but it still has fire damage. 
It's a, well, from what I understand. You get a burnt out tower or the tarp. <laughs> Maybe they were afraid the tower was going to collapse. I don't know. I don't know either. Or but, smoke was still in there. Yeah. That's how smoke works. And plus it was... It lingers for three, <laughs> two or three days. <laughs> and plus it was propane and gas that... I, I don't know how that works. I'm sure Joey could probably explain it better. Explosively. That's how it works. <laughs> oh. The Coast Guard Cutter Woodrush noticed the black smoke two days later during a routine trip. That's a boat, Beth. I know. Okay. The way you said it, you act like it was... Its name was Cutter. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought it was a name when I was doing this, and I was like, what kind of name is that? And I looked it up and found out it was a boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a boat. Yeah. Apparently a common one for Coast Guards. It rescued the survivors and put out the fire. Oh, the fire was going for two days. Yeah. Okay, that explains why they didn't go in. I forgot about that part. Otherwise, I would have yeah. said that. And then it prepared the winter lamp for the year. There's a spare lamp? I guess so. <laughs> one that doesn't need a lighthouse keeper. Bring out the winter lamp. Let's get festive. <laughs> <laughs> The cause of the explosion is unclear, but many believe that gasoline fumes ignited due to the machinery defect or human error. They just blame the blown up dude. Oh, I hope not. Pretty sure that's what they just done. Oh. Wasn't he the machine guy? He was, oh, I don't remember which one he was. Standard Rock Lighthouse requires significant renovations, which are estimated at around $2 million. They are seeking donations to help save it and... If interested, you can visit their website at standardrock.org. We'll leave the link in the description of the show notes. The lighthouse is now automated, so it still works. It's just some of the areas are a little, not little, but the pictures didn't look too good. Well, as long as it works. It's like our fire tower. Don't look good, but it works. We don't use it anymore. I'm pretty sure it is still used for something. I just don't know what. Well, it's got something on it. I don't know I what it graffiti, is. I think graffiti, a canvas for graffiti. Well, no. <laughs> well, yeah, it's used for that. But it's got those flashing electronic, whatever they are. <laughs> the doodads and bubbles. <laughs> yep, those. <laughs> We're going to talk about Navajo Nation's radiation spill crisis. It contaminated the, I'm sorry if I pronounced this wrong, Puerco River and Telling Ponds. And you got one of those right. <laughs> well, the Telling Ponds were obviously contaminated. That's what they're for. Yeah. Which I will go into. It's located in Church Rock, New Mexico. There are more than 500 abandoned uranium mines on or near the Navajo Nation. And there are large mounds that created human-made hills. They're created from the uranium waste from the mines. I'm sure it's perfectly safe. Oh, yes, of course. Between 1944 and 1986, nearly 30 million tons of uranium ore were extracted from Navajo lands because the United States was making nuclear weapons. We need those Minutemen. Many Navajo people worked and lived near these mines. Even though the mines are closed now, there's still a lasting issue of uranium contamination due to the over 500 abandoned mines. On July 16, 1979, a dam near Church Rock, New Mexico broke at a telling pond. A telling pond holds a vast amount of radioactive sludge. It's measured in hundreds of millions of gallons. Sounds like a great way to store radioactive sludge. Oh, yeah. The uh, U.S. Government's not very good when it comes to cleaning up this kind of stuff. I mean, we're a lot better than some other places. Yeah, true. We're not at the top I guess of the list, but we're a, not at the bottom. Either. Yeah, I guess it is a difficult cleaning. Well, you have to store it somewhere where it will be safe for millennia. Yeah. It's hard to plan for unless you're ancient Egyptian, and that seems to work out for them pretty well. Yeah. This is said to be the biggest radioactive spill in the U.S. history, and though I don't know much about radioactive spills in U.S. history, 
that's what I kept coming across. So I'm going to say you should play is. more Fallout. I'm assuming all of that is not fact. I've yet to be attacked by a giant cockroach. Okay. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. The U.S. General Accountability Office reported in May 2014 that this incident released 94 million gallons of radioactive waste to the Puerco River, which flowed through nearby communities. And that was a quote. Do not eat the fish. <laughs> Don't swim in the water. <laughs> Don't drink the water. Matter of fact, just move. Just, no, just go away. That's kind of what they were telling them to do, and it's not okay. Uh, well, Still yet. Uh, there, but, at, the, at the point it's got out, there's no stopping it once it's in the water. Yeah. The, the, nobody can stop it. You either leave or deal with the consequences. Yeah. It might not have been their decision to be there, and it might not have been their decision to have that thing put in, but now the consequences are unfortunately in their lap. Yeah. The radioactive materials consisted of water mixed with meal tailings. It contained toxic substances from the process of turning mine uranium into yellow slurry, which is called yellow cake, apparently. I like a lemon cake. I don't think this is as good as lemon cake. No, I'd say it tastes like a mineral. Probably. Yum. Radiation. The U.S. Department of Energy estimates that millions of gallons of water contaminated by the mill tailings were released into the groundwater over the life of the sites through the unlined ponds. Oh. That was also a quote. The 1979 dam collapsed was different from the gradual contamination. It triggered a rapid public health disaster due to the sudden release of the contaminated water. Sorry if I don't pronounce this name correctly as well. Pasternak? Pasternak? The author of the book Yellow Dart explored books and government documents and interviewed hundreds of people in the Navajo area. The consequences of polluted water affecting humans and animals were uncovered on July 16th and the days that followed. The water filled with acids caused a metal culvert in the Puerco to twist and burn a little boy's feet when he was waiting. In the Did water. you say twist? The metal culvert. I was confused by this too. It twisted someone's feet? No, not the feet. The metal culvert. It didn't twist the boy's feet. It just <laughs> burned his feet. Not a good either. But oh, okay. Yeah, I was trying to find a way to make that less confusing because I was confused. Yeah, I, as I was well thinking oh, when I God. read it. <laughs> oh no, the sheep collapsed and died. Crops wilted along the riverbanks. The radiation surge was so strong that it reached Sanders, Arizona, fifty miles downstream. It seems like our little uh, saltville incident we covered a few months ago isn't nearly as bad as this. No. A lot of people died. We didn't have radiation. Yeah. One of them lingers a lot more than the sludge we had. There was some chemical burns in that as well, but... It looked nasty. Yeah. Both the Indian Health Services and the state strongly recommended that Navajos not drink the water or let their animals drink the water downstream from the spill. However, those near the river had limited options yeah this is unavoidable yes and one of the documentaries that i watched which interviewed those living in the area stated that nobody told them not to drink the water until several days later that sounds like a very chernobyl incident yeah the company in charge knew about the cracks in the tailings pond wall a year before the accident occurred but they avoided taking responsibility for several years only 1% of the radioactive waste was cleaned up within three months of the spill. Once it's in the water, like I said, it's just not going to go away as easily. Yeah, but they avoided taking responsibility at all. Oh, yeah, that's just a given. You can get any corporation to do that, unfortunately. A government report found at one point the river had over 1,000 times the allowed radioactivity for drinking water. I don't know what the recommended radioactivity 
in drinking water is? I got my radioactive uh, uranium glasses in there that I drink out of regularly, and I think it's safe. That's a lie. I don't drink out of them. I'm terrified of them. <laughs> but they look good on a shelf. Well, during the time, newspapers described the area as only a few people living there and that the spill didn't pose an immediate health risk. Water moves. Yeah, it moves. Clearly. It's not going to just be there. The town 50 miles away started getting yeah. radioactive readings. So, yeah. And that's also not fair. There were quite a few people living there. You should probably have a bit of human decency and think about them as well. The Navajo people still experience the environmental and health impacts. Environmental Protection Agency and other federal agencies states that the exposure to high levels of uranium can lead to health effects including lung cancer, bone cancer, impaired kidney function, cardiovascular disease, birth defects. And when the sheep were butchered, their fat had turned yellow from consuming the contaminated water. Certain areas of Europe have to have their cattle frequently checked for radioactivity because of the Chernobyl incident so many years ago. Poor cows. And then reindeer also. (gasps) Poor reindeer. Next on the list isn't really water, but it's surrounded by water. And I found it interesting, so I included it because I can. It's Hart Island, located in New York. It's less than 16 miles from the Empire State Building. Hart Island began being used as a mass grave during the Civil War and is still in use today as a mass grave. It served as a training ground and prisoner of war camp for the Union Army. The soldiers who died there were among the first recorded to be buried on the island. Mostly those buried there now are the poor or unidentified and the unclaimed individuals. Mostly also people who can't afford proper burials for their loved ones, Mm -hmm. sadly. As of today, over one million people are buried on the island. I think I've seen a documentary about this place. Yeah, I watched one when I found out about it. It's where part of the information came from. Cool. Yeah. In the 1890s and early 1900s, bodies would float up in the spring in the harbors and river. Police had to retrieve these bodies, and they were often unidentified. During the 1918 flu pandemic, burials on Har Island exceeded 5,000 per year. At the time, the cemetery was limited to the island's northern tip, not the whole island. So the city built a hospital, a reformatory school, a prison, and during the Cold War, a missile storage site was built on the island. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, there was was everywhere. (laughs) So you couldn't go anywhere without coming across a missile or something war-related. And I don't know, some sources said that the hospital was an insane asylum. Some just said hospital, so I'm not really sure or if it was used for different things. In the 1970s, a fire on the island destroyed some of the records, and then the AIDS epidemic hit New York, and this resulted in thousands being buried there. They just threw the AIDS patients in the island? They were dead. Um, still, that's obviously an island for the pandemic and stuff. Yeah, people. it's kind of like our first episode, Pavilion Island. That's kind of why I really... Enjoyed Except finding this AIDS patients. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> not the bubonic plague. It's a little more recent. True. It, they didn't know much about it, and um, but no. As far as I know, these people were already dead. Yeah. I hope that's when the cemetery began to expand southward. After years of struggling to create a new system for record keeping, which caused difficulty for people to locate the loved ones that were buried there. A public database was established finally in 
16. From 1970s, when the fire destroyed some of the records and their record-keeping system, which apparently wasn't that great to begin with, went downhill to 2013. Apparently not a priority on their list. You got to think, this is like, what, 12 years after 9-11? Oh, that's true. They got real busy oh, for a short while there. I wonder how many went there during that. I, I don't know. They, it's hard to tell what kind of people they put there. It doesn't sound... Oh, it's mostly... Undesirables um, is what the, I would consider the state That's pretty then. much the way it is, and that's why people find it so offensive. Yeah. Well, part of the reason that people find it so offensive. I'll have my own thought on that later on. The Department of Correction managed the island for most of its history, and due to this, the inmates often were relied on to work on Heart Island. It also wasn't very well kept due to that. Mm -hmm. The burial process, there is a dead house near the dock where unclaimed bodies are put in boxes, just plain cheap pine boxes. And some of the babies apparently were like newborns and smaller ones Unfortunately, were we put can't... in shoe boxes. The bodies in the pine boxes are then thrown down a chute and land on a ferry ship. The bodies are transported to the island and trenches are dug 15 feet deep and 6 feet wide. Coffins are stacked 13 deep and layered with soil in between each one and the other. Mm -hmm. So it's like coffin, little layer of dirt, coffin, like lasagna for coffins. Yeah. Can you imagine how the ground must be bowing after all that? Because the coffin's going to run mm -hmm. away. Yeah. And then the whole ground's going to sink in. I'll tell you. It, it's coming up. Like, just a little bit here. Awesome. Children's coffins are placed at the feet of the others to create a solid mass. The documentary I watched didn't say placed. It said tossed. Now, I've had to do firewood stacking before. You can't just toss something in unless you've done it for years and years and mm. years, and it land perfectly where you want it to, end-to-end, -end, stacked properly. Yeah. So they say that because it makes it sound worse. But Yeah. That's what I was also thinking. Who knows? Well, I wasn't comparing it to wood, but I was thinking if you're trying to save the room and get them to fit in there. You're not just going to be tossing yeah. in there nilly-willy. Yeah. Each trench contains up to 150 coffins. Every 25 years, after the pine boxes and the bodies have completely decomposed, the trenches are refilled. You know it's, they're digging through bone. They're not de fully decomposed. Well, yeah, there's a, <laughs> that's exactly what they're doing. There's some left, which means some of it probably shows up at the top layer again. Yeah. Imagine um, how well you can get a plant to grow there. But maybe that explains your question of the soil yeah, it or the ground. Yeah, it decompress over time. Yeah, so it doesn't really have much time to do that, apparently. It has to do it if the, if the stuff is rotted away. Yeah. It's but then they just dig it up again. Yeah. It's a never ending process. Cool. People in New York die often. If nothing else, it is efficient. But that's all you can say for it. Yeah. In the documentary I was watching about Heart Island, a woman shared that a hospital physician informed her that infants born addicted to crack and they didn't survive were placed in shoeboxes and sent to Heart Island for burial. And this physician told her that it was often thousands at a time. Obviously, not all of them were addicted to crack. I... Some of it was heroin. What? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, sadly, but it, there's other reasons that they didn't survive. In 2020, when COVID hit New York, our island gained national attention. Oh, I remember that. I want to say I remember seeing it on TikTok. There was no avoid. But I didn't really, yeah. I didn't have the podcast at the time, so I didn't bother to go into it. In 1988, during the peak of the AIDS crisis, more than 1,500 bodies were buried on Heart Island. That's not as many as I thought. That's just one year, though. Yeah. 
But in 2020, due to COVID-19, the number exceeded 2,000. That's 2,000 unclaimed bodies, Mm. pretty much. Yep. Or bodies impossible to be paid for. Mm -hmm. People did not like that these bodies were being buried in a mass grave on the island, which I understand that it would be hurtful and difficult if you couldn't afford to bury a loved one after they had passed on. But the city does have to do something with the deceased. They can't just let them lay there and decompose. That's extremely unsanitary. I wonder if it's more cost efficient to cremate or... I know most countries cremate. I thought about that. I don't know why. Unless there's just so many that they don't want to do that all at once and cause a horrible stink. I really don't know the reason why they don't do that. Hmm. Or if some people don't want their loved ones to be cremated or if it may cost more. Maybe it costs more. I really don't know, but... To them, As I said, I understand why people would be hurt, especially when it came to the record system and not knowing exactly or being able to easily get to their loved ones. You would have no way of finding it anyway. You yeah. could stand on a stack with well, 16 also, other families and have, somebody grave. In, and have somebody in that spot. Yeah, it's a mass grave. Yeah, so you and, and these other 16 people you never met before are all over the same yeah. patch of ground. I understand their feelings, but as I said, the city has to do something. If you can't afford to do it, they can't just let these bodies lay there and decompose there's not much i'm assuming i I don't know much about new york but it's it's a city i'm assuming there's not that much space to put that many people unless it's on that island too many corpses yeah something has to be done yeah i was wondering about the cremation thing myself Mm -hmm. but i don't have an answer for that sadly some of the current challenges on Hard Island are the buildings are unstable and contaminated with asbestos Ah. so some of the buildings apparently are still standing if not all. Also, coastal erosion poses a more horrific problem. A 2018 CBS report revealed that exposed decades-old skeletal remains along the coastline had been found. Maybe they should plant some grapevines there and start a winery, like the Italians. (laughs) Like on Favelia Island? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, if this is interesting to any of the listeners, Go check out our first episode. It's Pavelia Island, and it's... It's the plague island for yeah. Italy. Yeah, during the bubonic plague. It was our most popular until our Halloween, Halloween episode. episode. yeah. So it was apparently de- a lot of people enjoy it. I it, thought it was interesting. It was dethroned by the Mothman and then the Halloween episode. Oh, I forgot about the Mothman mm-hmm. taking it over. The city has been making plans in an attempt to fix the problems by transferring the management of Hart Island from the Department of Correction to the Department of Parks and Recreation. I knew they'd get to those great vines eventually. <laughs> Efforts are planned to make the island easier for loved ones of the people buried there to visit, more ferries to transport them over. And the city is collaborating with landscaping companies and federal agencies to address the problems due to the erosion as well as keep an organized and clean environment on the island. According to the website on heartisland.net, the Heart Island Project is now the only green cemetery in New York. Remember in the jazz funerals and I forgot what it's called episode, morning death rituals. Some of them like to have like overgrown cemeteries. Yeah, like you don't have a, you either have a easily wooden decomposable coffin or you don't have a coffin at all and you're just wrapped in cloth that can decompose easily and you have a garden. Now, it wasn't designed to be that way from the start. It was just cheap at first. Yeah. But it is it is what it is. So yeah. it is 
clearly after a few years, they can dig it up and you don't even know there's a body there. Yeah. Which is kind of good. That's kind of cool. I'm the kind of person who thinks this stuff is cool. So I'm sorry for the families who are upset by it. But it's also doing yeah, it's good great. for the earth. Yeah. It's plants being grown and fertilized. Yeah. That's probably not the best way to put that, but I don't know how else to. Uh, ashes, ashes, dirt to dirt. Yeah. You got to go back where you came from. Uh-huh. Unless you get launched into space. Yeah, that, that's an option, too. Off to if horizon. that interests you, there's many options. If you want to go check that one out, They're it not affordable. says jazz funerals at the end of the episode. It's You could also become a coral. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the coral is my, I love that idea. Or dangle off a cliff face. There's so many different, that's a good episode we've done. Yeah. And the only affordable natural burial option for most residents of New York. If interested, options for donating to this project are available on the website as well. I'll add the link in the description. And that's all for this episode of Horrific Hydros. Ah, yes. Or whatever I was going to call it. (laughs) Horrific Hydro Hellscapes. Yeah. We're going to do another episode of this for next week. So it's going to be a little bit more of the smaller parts we didn't want to cover. And we had some long stories in this one. I believe you said the next few are going to be shorter, right? Like a bunch of short versions of different occurrences. Yeah. So that'll be a part two. If you like what you heard here, there is a link in the description for our link tree. It'll take you to all of our socials and everything. The first website you see will be a podcast homepage for us and all of our other stuff. We have Brother Knows Quest on there. It's a podcast where I talk about D&D. We have a few episodes of Leveling Duo or me and my friend Dakota talk about video games. And each of those uh, podcasts will have an option to uh, leave a tip if you'd like to do that. We'd appreciate it. If you want us to have a, a shout out to you, let us know. You have an option to leave a message when you tip. Also, our YouTube and stuff like that's on there if you want to watch us stream. And uh, the not in the link tree, but below the link tree link, there'll be two emails, one for Beth and one for just the podcast uh, network in general, Grissom Gaming Group. That's If you want to reach out to both of us, that's the way to do it, the Grissom Gaming Group email. And let us know what you think, what you'd like to hear. We'll have a subscription service available soon through our uh, podcast homepage. So if you would like to hear longer or just more in-detail episodes that carry over for a few weeks at a time. Yeah, some things that have things that we wouldn't be able to put on YouTube. Yeah, and since everything we upload to our podcast network gets uploaded to YouTube. There's some restrictions and horrific things that I can understand why YouTube wouldn't want to be there. So we're going to, uh, I just don't want to put the YouTube channel at risk. So they're going to be under a subscription base. It won't be expensive. But there'll be tiers you could choose. We're still building it up. Uh, the last couple episodes we've done actually were samples of what may come, only we plan to make them better yes, as we the, go along. The Toolbox Killers, I suggest you go check them out. Yeah, they're samples. Now, the first episode of the subscriptions when they go up will be the second part of the Toolbox Killer where she reads some very disturbing stuff yeah. from the court uh, transcripts. The audio tape. Yeah. <laughs> Reach out to us, like I said, and thank you for listening. I've been Ramey. And I'm Beth. This has been HH&H. Bye-bye.